Hello and welcome to an OU Law School podcast. In this episode, I have a chat with Paul Troop, who is an associate lecturer here at the law school. His research is close to mine. He's curious about how judges make their decisions, and he's using insights from neuroscience in this research. I had an interesting talk, and I hope you like it as well. On that note, the law school is celebrating the 50th years of the Open University starting in September. We are sorry for the delay, but we wanted to make it right rather than quick. So, thank you for your patience. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, I'm talking today with Paul Troop. Um, he is an associate lecturer here at the Open University Law School, and we're going to talk about his uh, research into how judges reason. Um, so, Paul, can you give us an introduction about yourself? My name is Paul Troop. Uh, I'm a barrister by profession. I've been practicing for several years. Um, and I'm also now a PhD student at, U- at UCL. My methodology looks at trying to understand legal decision-making but through a more scientific um, analysis rather than the doctrinal analysis where you look at cases. So I'm, we try and conduct experiments, develop theories, um, test, test, test our theories out, revise them, write theoretical articles. I'm jointly supervised by two departments, by the law department and by brain sciences, so it's a fairly dis- interdisciplinary methodology. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the thing, key things that popped into my mind when you said um, uh, we're trying to see how judges reason or how people reason or how lawyers reason more scientifically. So what's the, um, and I'm doing air quotes, the unscientific way of doing it? Well. The problem with real-life cases is they're really very messy. You can't really carry out controlled experiments because there are so many counterfactuals. So one of the, con- one of the concerns, and this was one of the concerns of the American legal realists, is you never really know how a judge decided the case. You can only go on what they said. Um, and that's a real problem because it's very difficult to isolate the factors which may have caused the judge to make the decision as they did, which they might not mention in their reasons. There's no... I mean, ideally, you you would have the same judge conduct a series of very similar cases, each different by one single factor, mm. and then from that you could identify, well, these are the factors which make the difference. But obviously, in real life, it's very, very rare that you get two cases which are exactly the same. Um, so it's almost impossible to work out with any confidence what was actually going through the judge's mind. The, the advantage of the scientific method, although there are many disadvantages as well, is that you can ask a large group of either judges or lay people to decide these cases, give them very similar, very similar scenarios, each different by, say, one factor. And there you can see that, at least in the laboratory, whether that single factor makes a difference. And that's really the, the huge advantage of the scientific methodology um, for understanding how judges make decisions. So uh, can we go a bit more deeper into the, the scientific methodology? Um, Paul gave a, a fascinating talk a couple of weeks ago regarding one of his recent uh, research outcomes. So can you tell us about the methodology in that one? What, what, how did you try to control the messiness of life? Basically. Well, the, 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 the particular experiment I spoke about was inspired by trolley problems. And trolley problems are hypothetical moral dilemmas 
started out as a philosophical question, but people then started testing to see actually how did people actually respond to these moral dilemmas. And what they found was something quite interesting, was if you have, say, two moral dilemmas, say A and B, if you present them in the order AB, people respond differently compared to if you present them BA. So we thought, well, morality isn't that much different from law. So we were wondering whether we could get a similar, similar um, pattern with legal decision-making. So we, so we identified some legal scenarios, very, very similar. So um, there were two. Um, the first one was um, an application, a hypothetical ap application to the High Court. And the question was, um, the, the applicant, joined by a hospital, wanted to commit suicide, which of itself isn't, isn't illegal. But he also wanted to donate his organs for medical research um, and for transplant. And obviously there's a difficulty with that, because if you commit suicide no one knows where you're going to commit suicide, it's going to be very difficult for your organs to survive in a, in, a, in a good condition to be transplanted. So the issue was whether it was lawful for a person in that situation to, to commit suicide on hospital premises. Obviously not assisted by the hospital, but on, on hospital premises. So that was the background scenario. And then we had two manipulations. So in one, one manipulation, in one, in one scenario, the individual had uh, very painful multiple sclerosis, which was not, was not treatable. In the other scenario, the individual had serious long-term depression, which potentially is treatable. And we gave those two scenarios to quite a number of people, either, it, either in the, the multiple sclerosis version first, followed by depression, or depression first, followed by multiple sclerosis. And we found that in isolation, people tended to approve of the multiple sclerosis application, but they tended to disapprove of the depression application. But what we found very interestingly was if, if the multiple sclerosis application came first, people approved of it, but if it came second, so after the depression, people disapproved of it. So we, we essentially isolated a very clear order effect, mm -hmm. similar to, 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 the, to, the, to the effects we found in, um, in morals, moral psychology. We had a second, a second scenario um, based loosely on the very famous um, ju uh, duress of circumstances and necessity case of um, uh, Dudley and Stevens, R against Dudley and Stevens from the 19th century. And in this case, um, three people were shipwrecked miles from anywhere, um, and they survived for a, a, a couple of weeks, but then they ran out of food. They were all starving hun hungry. And two of them killed one of the others and ate that individual mm -hmm. to survive, as, as happened in, in uh, Dudley and Stevens. And we had two manipulations. In one, two of, two of the other sailors just attacked the cabin boy. And in the other, uh, they discussed the situation, agreed that they would draw lots, drew lots, and then the individual that was killed and eaten essentially consented to it. And we found a very similar thing. 
So uh, in isolate, well, the consent drawing lots was pretty much always approved on, and people thought that was a justifiable reason, and they thought the defence was made out, the defence of duress of circumstances. The other scenario, where two of the sailors just attacked the one scenario, if people saw it in isolation, they tended to think, yes, that was, that was, that was, that was acceptable and the defence was made out. But if they'd seen the other scenario first, that there was a consent and the drawing of lots, then they found it unreasonable and they tended to say the defence wasn't made out. So again, in a, in a criminal, criminal circumstance this, this, this time, we found another order effect. Um, and obviously you can't see that from just looking at one individual case or even a couple of cases. But the more, time, the, the more times you give the same scenario to different people, the more you can see that actually it's the manipulation that's having an effect. So those are the types of patterns that it's, you might suspect happens in real life, but it's essentially impossible to work out whether they are actually taking place. So, so that's the... So that's the big thing, isn't here? That that you can have a controlled environment where you can test out the way that people reason. Um, and so, what so what are the consequences of this for real life? Uh, for instance, do we um, not schedule cases one after another? Do we hope that um, we schedule cases that we want decided on one one way in a sequence? Or do we just um, let it go on as it is now and we just think that judges are people too and they have done this for quite a while um, and that it might not be such a big problem because this is already internalized in the way that the law operates? Well, that, that's, that's a great question. I think one of, the, one of the things that's very key is that potentially this type of research could have a huge impact on the legal system. That said, I think it's, 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 it's important to be cautious about this and say, well, hang on a minute. Um, did, is this likely to happen in real life? Is it going to happen with professional judges? Are there other factors about um, criminal trials or civil trials which mitigate against these patterns so that we might not expect to see them in real life? And I think that, that maps onto the second issue, which is some of the shortcomings of, of um, experimental research like this. Uh, you know, it's the question of what's called external validity. How legitimate is it to infer from your laboratory experiments that these type of things happen in real life? And obviously, it's important to be aware that, you know, carrying out experiments on lay people, even if they're representative lay people, so they might be the same age, same background as the type of people that would make these decisions. There may be other factors which make it different, these experiments the fact is the circumstances of the experiments different to real life. Now one thing for example is, um, and this, I think this links to some of the theories as to why this phenomenon occurs. So if we take the shipwreck case, one idea, at least one hypothesis, hypothesis which we'll test is, well, are people just not thinking deeply enough about the scenarios? Um, so, you know, they you present them with a scenario, they, they give a fairly superficial thought to it and give their kind of first impressions as to what they think is, is, is happening. It should be the right thing. But if they thought about it more deeply, maybe they'd think actually their first, their first view was not right. And maybe that's what's happening when we present two of these scenarios together. So essentially, 
when we give the captain scenario where the captain agrees to be killed with consent, that makes people think more deeply, actually, you know, there is a more reasonable way of deciding who's going to get eaten mm -hmm. on the raft. And maybe those types of factors actually take place in, in real life. For example, you know, it's a much longer period. There's discussion between the individual jurors to say, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? There's also the advocates for both parties. You know, the advocates are putting the best case for either side. So if the prosecution might say, well, hang on, we don't say this is reasonable because there's a much more reasonable way of choosing the person to be killed, i.e. they should discuss it, maybe work, work out who's got the least to lose, maybe work out a fair way of choosing the person. And they, and they would give that, those arguments in their closing speeches to the jury and say, well, these are the considerations you might want to think about. Similarly, we know that in a, in a serious criminal trial, the judge sums up and gives the jury different aspects to think about. So it may be that all of the different factors that differentiate an experimental scenario from a real-life scenario are the types of things which would minimise those, those types of factors. But what's good is that, at least from the experimental scenario, we can see these factors exist, and we can think about testing them more deeply in a more, say, realistic scenario with real judges, or somehow, you know, working out a, a real-way method of looking at real cases to see perhaps if there's, you know, there is a way of isolating whether these factors make it make a difference. So there's, um, there's something, because in my research, when I was thinking about how judges reason or how my research is more about how judges justify their hmm. their internal mechanisms um, or their internal thoughts and my view here is that that judges go through especially um, high court judges so judges at, at apex courts because they get very very tricky cases uh, that can go either way that's why they ended up there um, that they go through a period of sort of, of an excruciating weighing arguments, uh, weighing their conscience, looking at the law, and at the end going one way or another. Um, sometimes um, their personal politics influences them. A lot of the times it's the arguments that they've heard, either whether from the amicus curiae or from the advocates or looking um, in the victim's eyes, for instance. Um, and sometimes they get swayed by um, personal circumstances. Anger right before going into an elevator. Sometimes that happens also. I think that happens in, in more high-stakes judgments. Things happen. That, that happens much less, especially in a prolonged period of time. But they, those things do influence. Um, conversations with other people their fellow judges influences them. So there's, there's, there's pretty messiness that goes out that can sort of um, make noise into the signal, uh, which is the scientific method that you're, that you're trying to do. So here comes uh, a question on top of the previous one in sense of, I think this is very valuable to know of how usually normally people reason but how, how much can we transfer this into real life um, in terms of can we train judges to know their own biases? Um, can we train judges to think more structurally about the way that they make decisions? Um, and this, is, this all goes back to a, a 
uh, a breakthrough that happened in behavioral economics. Um, so, for instance, they tested international judges of whether anchoring has an effect on when they award multi-million dollar awards. Um, so, for instance, uh, they've, they've checked whether if a, if a lawyer gives outrageous amount of comp for, for, for a compensation, whether judges are actually influenced in moving uh, their settlement um, award towards the, the outrageous amount that the, that the lawyer gave. Um, and they found that um, international judges are better than ordinary people in doing this, but they still go through the same biases. Um, so the question is, how much can we actually then transfer this type of knowledge into um, a real-life scenario, into training for judges or preparing them in their career? That's a, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, issue and also raises some very interesting potential solutions. So the issue is... Um, our, our common sense kind of tells us that, you know, when we think about someone asks us a question, we kind of pull everything that's relevant from our mind and answer it to the best of our ability. But as our, the previous research I've discussed, and also the theory behind cognitive science, um, which is a way of kind of modelling human or thinking about human minds from what we know about computers and information processing, and the issue is that it's, it's, it's almost impossible for a decision maker to take into account everything that might be relevant to their decision. Um, it might be that it's very difficult to retrieve everything from their memory. It might be that they just don't know what might be, a, say, a reasonable settlement, settle amount that's accepted in, in, in everyday practice. So what, 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 seems, what seems to be the case is that... Um, Thinking can be fairly superficial, but there are various factors which we know can, can cause people to think more deeply about it. So deliberation, so discussing it with others, argumentation, um, for example, I think that's one of the great benefits of the adversarial trial, is that you have two, two parties that are responsible not for just getting the right answer, but for putting the strongest arguments on both sides. And I think that may be one, one way in which we get the judges to explore all the terrain which they need to explore. In terms of, in terms of solutions, again, the kind of intuitive solution is, well, we've just got to teach judges to think mm -hmm. more deeply. I mean, that, that to me is, is um, tempting, but the <laughs> evidence shows it doesn't work. Okay. Um, and, it, you know... There's been a lot of research about, for example, implicit bias, and and you know if if people exhibit implicit bias, um, the intuition or the or the, the temptation is that well we just need to teach them more to be more aware of it, and then that then they can combat it. But actually, the research is pretty negative, and it shows that actually uh, it just makes people better at hiding their biases mm -hmm. rather than better at address addressing them. So I think what what's more promising is to understand much better not rely so much on intuition, but rely on science. And science seems to suggest that there are certain mechanisms, certain environments, which are more likely to produce deeper thinking, more reflection, more examination of all the relevant factors. So, I mean, just... Uh, many, many of things are actually very well ingrained in, in, the, um, in the trial process. For example, the right to fair trial requires that a side has to be heard. It's very tempting for a judge to think, well, I, I know what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing that this party could say could ever sway me. 
and may, may, many judges may think that. But actually, that's not the case. Uh, we know that people don't think about everything, and it does take a representative or an individual for one party to say, hang on, think about this factor. And even if the judge isn't aware that it's having an impact on their thinking, it tends to have, a, to have an impact. So I think the science has identified the problem, and science has also suggested that actually the solutions are not intuitive. The solutions are more about understanding which types of environments encourage deeper thinking, encourage greater transparency, encourage greater ac accountability. And a lot of these things have actually be been found, as in the example mm -hmm. of the right to fair trial, by judges through trial and error, through reflection, through, through deep thinking. So there's a quite a nice relationship between the two. That, that gets me to another sort of a point, which is that this is, um, a, you, you're designing an environment, an entire system. So tweaking just a little small part won't do uh, to sort of safeguard against these things. So for instance, in your, um, in your example of having two lawyers putting the best argument for their side forward, but that also implies that the, that the both sides have access to very good lawyers, right? And that's not always the case. There are people who need legal aid. Um, uh, the prosecutor has the whole government budget behind them, right? Um, and while somebody who's on the defense side has um, their local solicitor or barrister. So how, how do we, so tweaking one side, for instance, giving more legal aid might not solve all of this. Or um, uh, if you don't at the same time give space for judges to have more reflective time, if you cram in more cases for, uh, for a smaller amount of judges. Um, so it is, it is sort of a systemic thing that you have to do rather than just tweaking something here and there. Um, all right. Um, now I want to sort of go back to a little bit about um, the choices that you made during in, in trying to answer this question. So what, why did you go for um, going into science and uh, neuroscience to answer your questions of how judges or how people deliberate rather than going through the traditional route? You are a barrister, you have a legal training. So what pushed you going through that uh, into the, an uncomfortable zone of science, let's say? Because lawyers, really, we, we don't like math. That's the stand, stereotype. We don't like math. We don't like science. We're good at reading things and understanding things that way. I, I think there were two things which, which caused it. Um, one was that before I studied law, I came from a very technical background. I, was very into, I did maths, physics, chemistry, very sciencey A-levels. So I always felt very comfortable with those types of analysis of the world with, with natural science. Um, and then I, then I moved to law and I practiced as a lawyer. Um, and I, I always had kind of questions as to, you know, how the law worked in a very deep sense. Because you're kind of taught in a very traditional way, at least the university I went to was taught in a very traditional way, that, you know, you present the, the law, you present the facts, and then you're going to win the case. But it seemed to me that there was a lot more idiosyncrasy about the system um, than that, and at least for a barrister whose job it is to present the best possible case for their client, um, understanding what those idiosyncrasies were could be really, really useful. Things came to a head, I guess, almost over 10 years ago, when I was doing a case. It was the biggest case I'd ever done. It was in the 
European Court of Human Rights, the Grand Chamber. It was a pro bono case that I'd picked up through my work in the former Yugoslavia. And it was against uh, a top QC, Lord Leicester. And we had a small team. And it was a really, really weighty case because it was about what was called soft ethnic cleansing, namely um, what happens obviously during a conflict is that there's a great polarisation, there's lots of refugees, so people from the people of the minority ethnicity tend to move away from where the majority is, at least during the course of the war. And then they want to come back at the end of the conflict. Um, but sometimes that's that's present, prevented. So this was this was a, a case, and it obviously didn't just affect this one individual. It was a principle that effect, affected tens, probably hundreds of thousands of people in the, in the Balkans. And I just felt an enormous weight of pressure on me to do my best in this case. And it, it didn't feel to me that it was enough just to present the facts and present the law. I had to. I felt like I had to have a really deep understanding of what would work and what wouldn't 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 work. And I spent a good period of months looking at research into work, ways of understanding um, advocacy, persuasion, looked at all sorts of things, books on sales, um, marketing, and it came back, back to, I guess, the idea of certainty of knowledge. If someone tells you something, you can never really rely on what they, they tell you, even if they tell you this is the way to do your job. Whereas, at least with the scientific method, if you can say, well, there's this evidence that this technique works, these factors make a difference, these factors don't make a difference, these factors make things worse, mm-hmm. at least you can have a little bit more confidence as to, as to you know, the quality of your tools, shall we say. Um, so it was, it was from that point on. I came across a book by quite a famous psychologist called Robert Caldini called Persuasion. And uh, Caldini was a... I'm probably murdering the pronunciation of his name. <laughs> um, he was a psychologist who was always getting ripped off, <laughs> one way or another, by various sales techniques. So he had this brilliant idea of trying to replicate the techniques which people used in the laboratory under controlled circumstances so he could know what it was about the technique which was effective. And his book is was, to me, a revelation of, uh, of to how you could go about investigating basically how things work, human nature, in a way which is going to give you more insight than intuition alone. And each of his chapters um, covers one different aspect, say reciprocity. Reciprocity. <laughs> Where someone, if someone gives you something small, mm-hmm. you are more likely to do something in return for them, even if that, that gesture is, is totally symbolic, like a, a very small flower. You know, it just has to be a rep- something representative, and then you're much more likely... Uh, to do what's what someone asks of you, if you commit in a small way to do, doing something, say having a very small card in your window saying about road safety, mm-hmm. you're much likely to make a bigger commitment later. Say having an enormous billboard in your garden saying, you know, road um, safe, road yeah. safety, obey the speed limit, obey the speed limit. Um, all sorts of little little insights which are just really really interesting. Um, even the even the presentation, so anchoring, for example, one of the things I was doing a lot of was was uh, making applications for damages for people that had been discriminated against, and and this, the the research shows that if you present the categories or or the the things for decision in the order of highest category to lowest rather than lowest category to highest you're more likely to, to arrive at a higher settlement amount or award. And that was found from vacuum 
vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> um, the, the, the thought was that actually, you know, if you're trying to sell an expensive vacuum cleaner, you show them the, the most rubbishy, cheap vacuum cleaner first and then get, get them to kind of get the client to work mm -hmm. up. But actually, if you show the top of the line vacuum cleaner first, then people tend to buy a more expensive vacuum cleaner than if they're shown the cheapest right. vacuum cleaner first. So those types of things. And then I got more and more interested in academic study and I thought, well, I, w I want to do this in a more, um, you know, not just in my spare time. Mm -hmm. I want to do this properly. And I want to be supervised by people which know what they're, what they're talking about. But also I want it to be relevant to law. So UCL was the one place that really could accommodate that. Okay. Um, so you've had to navigate through an interdisciplinary uh, environment. So can you tell us more about that? How, what, are, what are the sort of the obstacles that you found? Even though you've had an A-level, even though you're open to scientific evidence, uh, it probably was a little bit more of a culture shock than... Uh, something else? I think for me it wasn't so much a culture shock, but I think there's definite disciplinary barriers between the disciplines. Basically, the way we think about law, doctrinal law in particular, mm -hmm. which is the mainstay of Anglo-American jurisprudence, is is a certain way. It's the way we think about people, also known as folk psychology. It's a, it's a very distinct framework for thinking about the world. But the way we think about science is in terms of like physical cause and effect. You know, um, we don't think about machines having free will. We don't think about you know computers having having free will. Um, the way we think about science is very mechanistic, and those two worlds they're not obviously compatible. Mm -hmm. So if you go to someone, say in a law faculty, and say, "Well, I want to understand human behaviour as we would a, a, a mechanistic machine." Often their, their, their response to you is very, very hostile. It's like you're, it's almost sacrilegious mm -hmm. that you're doing something which is totally wrong-headed, um, that it deserves to be really strongly objected to. Um, scientists are, are much more open, to, I think, to working, about, working in mechanistic terms because that's kind of their bread and, bread and butter. But it's, it's very rare to find a place where there are people that are, you know, lawyers open to mechanistic explanations and scientists open to kind of human um, explanations and it's a very very difficult barrier and, I, and I, I, it's always very difficult to navigate I don't think I've yet managed to achieve <laughs> it and I'm going to upset people on the way but that's kind of part of the attrition which comes with trying to do something new and, and to do something interdisciplinary balance that fine line between accommodating you know chalk and cheese or oil and water they mm -hmm. don't mix very well that's how you get milk. <laughs> it's fat and yeah. Uh, so what's, and water. what's the what's Chicken the word for the um, the thing which emulsifier emulsifier yeah. So I guess that's my job to be the emulsifier. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Paul, thank you very much for this talk, um, and good luck in the PG. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and I hope you will come back for the next one too. As ever, you can find out more about us on the Law School's website. Check out the show notes below for more information on Paul Troop. Don't forget our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday starting in September. The music in the background is called Dirty Mac and Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.